to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software and production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Quintessence, or Quintessence Ox on Twitter. Today, we're talking about Liz's upcoming talk, Cultivating Production Excellence, at PagerDuty Summit at the end of this month. We're joined by Liz Vong-Jones, Principal Developer Advocate at Honeycomb, where she makes developers, operators, and workers on the whole more productive and empowered. Her background is in site reliability engineering with over 16 years of experience and has worked on a few products and services you may have heard of, like Google Cloud's Load Balancer and Google Flights. Liz, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Getting right to it, we're looking forward to your talk at Summit. Can you tell us a little bit about what inspired it? Yeah, so I spent over 11 years at Google as a site reliability engineer. And over the course of my time there, I realized that there's this gulf between what Google was saying was best practice, what Google was actually doing, and then what people were interpreting based off of the SRE book, based off of people who had left Google. And there's kind of this spectrum of experiences with production. And I really wanted to kind of distill down those 11 years of experience at Google into something that was more concrete and practicable for quick things that you can do, or not so quick things, but for things to work towards as you develop your culture. And that's kind of where this idea of production excellence and four principles of production excellence came from. That's awesome. And kind of related to that, what common myths or misconceptions about production did you find yourself answering from that experience? I think the most common misconception that I run into is people thinking, you know, oh, production has to be a nightmare. Production has to be a mess. This is why we pay ops people, right? Like, and it's this culture of like masochism on the part of ops people or a culture of kind of almost like abusive behavior or like just like tolerance of bad behavior where people assume that production has to be bad and therefore that production has to be run by people that, that, you know, you, you pay to sit in the trenches, right? And I think that that misconception was really, really thoroughly debunked for me at Google when I saw, you know, that there were teams that were just running their own services, that you didn't need to have a network operations center, right? Like that you could have services that behaved perfectly fine and weren't generating a lot of noise. And that as long as you had kind of the right setup and you equipped people correctly, that people could actually be on call and not have it ruin their lives. So I think that's kind of the number one misconception is that production is scary, production is going to ruin your life. And I'm here to tell you that, no, it's not going to ruin your life, but you have to kind of clean up your service a little bit. That all makes a lot of sense. I could definitely see how painful experiences kind of train your brain to think that it's just going to be more pain. And speaking of pain resolution, what do you feel are the biggest mistakes people make when adopting SRE practices? I think the biggest mistakes you will make when adopting S3 practices are, number one, they try to do everything that Google says exactly by the book. And that clearly is not going to work because your company is not Google and therefore different things are going to apply. And secondly, I tend to see that people uh, try to adopt SRA kind of all at once within their organizations, especially in large enterprises. They have a like, you know, leader who's like, you know, we're going to do SRA, we're going to do SRA, everyone do SRA, right? Like, and it doesn't really work that way. You kind of have to start small, you kind of have to expand out from there, you kind of have to build up that model of what does a good SRA team look like in your organization before you kind of try to scale it out. And that makes sense. When people are trying to scale it out, is there anything that you want to expand on for that last? I think with regard to scaling it out, you have to develop 
what I think of as a community of practice within your SRE org. That doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has to report to the same manager or everyone has to be on a dedicated team, but instead you have to think about how do you get these insights and knowledge shared between your various people who are fulfilling that SRE job role, even if they're not necessarily called that, you know, in terms of their job title, right? Like how do you make sure that good production practices are spread throughout your organization and people have somewhere to start if they're just getting started? And that makes sense. And it sounds like kind of leading in a little bit, lots of collaboration. How does this collaboration help improve observability? The Basically the end result, right? Yeah. So we haven't yet touched on what observability is. So let's quickly right. define it for our listeners here. Um, so observability is the ability to debug your system, the ability to ask any question about your system and understand what's happening inside of your system without necessarily having to push new code. So observability is this, not just the tooling, right? It's a socio-technical capability, right? It's the ability of the people and the existing tooling working together in order to solve these problems. So I think that's kind of one dimension of collaboration, um, which is, you know, something that I've definitely heard described by my friend uh, Jessica Kerr as this idea of, of somathacy, right? Of, of people and systems working together, right? So I think that's one dimension right. of collaboration. And then the other dimension of collaboration is collaboration across team boundaries, right? Like you shouldn't have someone else's service be a complete black box to you, right? Like you should have tracing or some kind of other capability to really tie your services together, both in terms of, you know, having your RPCs flow to each other, yes, but also being able to debug when those RPCs go wrong. So I think that's really how collaboration improves observability is kind of erasing some of those boundaries between services that would otherwise be opaque or hard to understand or kind of unwieldy when it comes to automation and systems working together. That all makes a lot of sense. And going back to your definition of observability, I know that you spend maybe a little bit of time talking about it, right? But when people are talking about asking questions of their system, do you have anything off the top of your head that can help people kind of understand what that means, right? Because it's not a a human dictated question. It's a human dictated question converted to a machine question somehow where you can actually get the right data. It's this stream of consciousness, right? Like it's this dialogue with your system, right? Like, so when I get paged, the first thing that I try to figure out is like, how bad is it? Who's impacted, right? And then from there, I start going into questions like, you know, why is this happening, right? Like, is it because this component has failed? Is it because we push a new version? Is it because this one user is sending us this really, really weird combination of traffic? Is it some combination of these things, right? Like, those are some of the questions I might be seeking answers to that help me debug and narrow down what's happening inside of my system so I can better mitigate and solve the issue. So I think that, you know, when we're trying to formulate these things, often our systems tend to hard code us into only being able to analyze along specific dimensions, right? Like only being able to analyze things by service or only being able to analyze things by machine, right? And turns out that user behavior is a much more interesting spectrum of behavior, right? So you have to be able to understand, you know, is it because user one, two, three, four started issuing more queries, right? Can you break down by users, right? I think that that's kind of where we start getting into uh, the differences between traditional monitoring-based approaches and observability where you can actually be in this dialogue with your system and iterate on your queries. That makes sense. And so when we're talking about, you know, user behavior and things like that, how do you make sure that the questions are appropriately, I guess, granular, right? Because you can think you're pulling data that helps you only to find out maybe it's too broad, too specific, you're not getting out of it what you thought you were going to. Yeah, I think that there's two answers to this. One of which is that First of all, you know, privacy has to be paramount, right? Like you cannot have an audited access to production 
people should be able to make sure that you're only using your access for appropriate purposes. And that means not inappropriately digging into users' data. So I think that's one dimension. I think the other interesting dimension here with regard to making sure you're getting the right data is always being able to check and verify your assumptions, right? Can you cross-check your hypothesis and make sure that it holds up from a different angle, right? So for instance, if you think that it is only one user that's having a problem, right, then you might cross-check to make sure, you know, is the increase in error rate actually correlated with this user sending more traffic, right? Can you actually specifically, not just correlated in time, but specifically see that user's error rate spike? Can you make sure that it's happening across multiple data centers and that it's not, you know, just an artifact of, oh, this user's traffic happens to be going to this one data center that's having a problem, right? Like you kind of have to approach it from multiple different angles to really get that kind of three-dimensional shape. That makes sense. And kind of getting into how people can design around that, people often treat their alerts around all these things as a safety blanket. So how do you convince people it's okay to remove something that's too noisy, speaking of, you know, scope and things like that? Yeah, people tend to assume that just because a dashboard or or an alert caught something the last time, that it's going to be good indefinitely into the future. And that's not necessarily true. Alerts and dashboards definitely have a shelf life. Um, They're good for kind of catching things that are specific to one thing that bit you in the past, but your next outage is not going to look like your past outage necessarily. And as these things accumulate and accumulate, eventually you wind up overpaging where people get woken up for things that aren't actually impacting system behavior, right? So you kind of have to pull the analytics out of PagerDuty, right? Like you have to say like, you know, we got paged a hundred times over the past month. That's three times per day. And of those 50 were not actionable, right? Like we didn't do anything. We just turned it off and went back to sleep, right? And that's not necessarily healthy. And there's a limited number of pages that you can cognitively interpret before your brain starts becoming overloaded and you just start ignoring or doing a bad job on everything, right? So I think that that's kind of the lesson to learn is that, Over-alerting is equivalent to not alerting at all because you start treating all the alerts as noise. Um, So that's kind of how I encourage people to to approach it is like this idea that observability helps you debug uh, from first principles. So you kind of only need a few basic alerts and you don't need a granular alert for everything in the system. And that enables you to have that cognitive bandwidth. And that makes a lot of sense. I know that some of the things that we talk about at PagerDuty, of course, is alert fatigue and kind of to that same point, right, where you have too much of a good thing and now it's not a good thing anymore. Something that comes to mind is how frequently or not to kind of flush out those alerts, not necessarily outright delete them, but how to iteratively edit them. And sometimes it depends what the setup is. Does it make sense to review it after an incident's resolved and say, hey, did this help me or not? Or maybe on a sprint cadence or something? Do you have any thoughts or recommendations and how often to edit kind of entropy balance your alerts? I think every two to four weeks is appropriate because past that you lose the context of, you know, hey, that alert was super spammy because the person who is on call doesn't even remember being paged for it. Um, So it has to be relatively fresh. So I think that sprint cadence is entirely appropriate. But I think along that same line, as you're saying, if you have a major incident, you might have a retrospective, right? And your retrospective might say, you know, we think we should add an alert for X, right? Like revisit in six to eight weeks, make sure you still feel that way. That makes sense. Pivoting a little bit, but relevantly, is there anything you like or dislike about alerting platforms as they are now in general? One of the favorite things that I had access to when I was at Google was the 
alert manager system at Google, which was very much infrastructure as code uh, as the primary way of interacting with it. So you could kind of see who was going to be on call at a given time. You could edit the text file and submit a pull request to put someone else on call. And I think that that kind of programmatic access is something that I wish were a lot easier uh, outside of Google. But overall, I think that having people like start dispatching alerts, having people have easy ways of escalating is a enormous change that uh, has enabled a lot of more legacy enterprises to move towards a more DevOpsy model. And I'm really excited about that makes sense. Okay, talking a little bit about Honeycomb. How is Honeycomb adapting to COVID since that's on everyone's mind? So one of the funny stories is that last year we started doing kind of these disaster drills uh, where we would all pick a week where everyone would work from home and the company would be full remote. Uh, This was in July, August, September of last year. So when COVID came and we all had to work remote, everyone had at least some exposure to working remotely, which was really, really interesting and made our lives a lot easier because all the kind of remote access challenges that people were struggling with uh, outside of Honeycomb were not really giant issues for us. So, you know, it meant that we knew how to talk to each other in Slack. We knew how to debug instance without sitting in the same room together. But definitely, I think as this has wound longer and longer and longer, I'm definitely starting to miss seeing my colleagues in person. I'm starting to miss physically, like, sitting over the same whiteboard and and uh, and creating something with them. So I think that's kind of been been the main challenge for us. But it's definitely been an exciting time for us at Honeycomb, given that we really have had like customers that are doing critical work uh, related to either COVID research, including the Chan Zuckerberg initiative, as well as kind of productivity apps like Slack that are using Honeycomb. And so it's kind of very, very important, uh, even more important for us to be available to help people debug their, their systems so that the whole world can stay productive during this. That makes sense. And you mentioned about, you know, having a good kind of short term plan for how to, to your point about disaster scenarios in practice. But since this became kind of a long term disaster rather than a short term one, is there anything that you'd like to talk about with how you manage things that changed beyond a week or a day? Yeah, right. Like the scenario we were all imagining in August and September originally was like, hey, you know, we might lose the lease in the office because we didn't necessarily have enough money to pay a new security deposit when our lease ran out. And then it was like, you know, hey, this might be helpful if there's an earthquake, right, where the Bay Area gets taken out of commission bins and it's everyone that's working from home. And I think right. that, you know, as you're saying, this this is one longer and longer. Uh, work-life balance is increasingly hard. Like, it's hard to actually peel myself away from the computer when I'm just working and working. Time zones also, when you work three hours apart from the rest of your colleagues, the temptation is there to just sit and work and work and work. And that's not necessarily the best idea in the world. And and yet it's, it's a thing that without clear boundaries between work and not, it's kind of hard to navigate. And then I think the other thing is, you know, <laughs> Personally, I'm in the middle of moving in a pandemic, which is also uh, fun and hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, I actually recently did my own move. And I think mine was a bit shorter in terms of distance than yours. But it was it's definitely a logistical thing. But our training, right, like our training as engineers who focus on operations is really, really helpful for that, right? And that allows you to break things down into pieces, delegate tasks, kind of have an incident commander, right? Like my spouse and I were planning the move and we were like, okay, this is how we're parceling out the roles. You know, this is who's on call for doing what, right? Like, and that's made life a whole lot easier. So kind of that bleed over between work skills and personal skills is kind of really, really helpful to have. 
Yeah, it, it is amazing how we can tie in kind of our work life into our home life a little bit. But getting back to like the, the boundaries, I guess, of work-life balance, it can be hard. I mean, I know some people when I see the Twitter and doom scroll a little bit, people talk about, oh, well, I have a home office or I don't have a home office. But some people, they're in a smaller living space. They have multiple people to that living space. They have small kids in that living space or whatever. And it kind of interferes with that boundary. So is there anything in your experience that maybe you do that can help people separate work from home when work is home? Yeah, I think that the number one thing that I've done there is that for the computer that I use for my gaming and kind of personal stuff, I have taken uh, work Slack off of my Slack client there um, so that when I go to play computer games, when I go to chat with friends, that I'm not seeing that like white notification light on the Slack. Like, you know, if I really need to access work Slack from that computer, I'll open it up in a web browser, right? Like I think that's kind of the, the number one life hack there. Similarly, like, you know, we all are pretty much like at our desks uh, or sorry, we're, pre- we're pretty much all like at home anyways. We're not like on the go. So like, you know, why is it that you have uh, your work Slack installed on your phone at this point, right? Like, you know, if you're working, you're going to be at your desk. And if you're not working, right, like if you're, as you're saying, doom scrolling on Twitter, you don't want that work notification to pop up. So like, seriously, take work Slack off of your phone. Like you don't, you do not need it right now. You know, if there's something important, you'll get a pager duty notification, right? Like, because, because someone needs you. So kind of having that trust that someone can get hold of you when they really need to will enable you to kind of decouple and and not pay attention when you want to go do something else. Awesome. And real quick before we wind down, speaking of people getting a hold of you, establishing that trust, is there just a bit of advice you have for people for next steps or steps they can take to build that trust if they're in a situation where they're cleaning up their alerts or they're in the process of making change, but they're not there yet. They're just walking towards it that can help them get there faster. I think that as you're working towards cleaning up alerts, you kind of have to apply the Marie Kondo thing, right? Like, does this bring me joy, right? If it doesn't bring me or my users joy, like you should, you should get rid of it. And kind of setting those top level alerts to know when uh, real users are having pain, like high error rate alerts are super helpful at top level, because then, you know, you will know, even if you eliminate some lower level alert, that you would get alerted if there were a serious problem affecting your end users. Okay. Was there anything else you really wanted to highlight from your talk since everyone's super excited to learn from you in a couple of weeks? No, I think that we teased elements of the talk quite well. And uh, you'll hear more from me about the subjects of observability, service level objectives, uh, and collaboration during my talk. All right. Well, that's awesome. For everyone listening in, please make sure to catch Liz's talk at PagerDuty Summit. It's going to be at 9.50 a.m. Pacific time on the 23rd of September. And also make sure to check out Liz's office hours, and we're going to be posting links to these in our show notes, as well as her blog post relevant to her talk, which is Sustainable Operations and Complex Systems with Production Excellence at InfoQ. And before we head off, we have two questions that we ask every guest. Are you ready? Sure. Hit me. All right. What is one thing that you wish you would have known sooner when it comes to running software in production? Making mistakes is normal. Uh, having your first outage is completely normal. The sooner you get your first, like, I was responsible for that outage out of the way, uh, the more comfort you'll gain in production. So don't be afraid to make mistakes. All right. Awesome. And is there anything you're glad that we did not ask you today? I am glad you didn't ask me about what specifically Google says it does that it doesn't, that, that it doesn't do. I think that that's a kind of <laughs> fascinating topic with lots of skeletons in that closet. 
Fair enough. Liz, thanks again for joining us. It was a pleasure. Looking forward to speaking at PagerDuty Summit. All right. Awesome. And we're looking forward to hearing from you. This is Quintessence wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittolimit.com, and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittolimit using the number two. That's pageittolimit with the number two. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.